Greetings, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this latest edition of Tales from Manor Space, where I take stories from across the internet and read them for your entertainment. Uh, just a quick note, if you are an author and would like to put your hat in the ring to get it narrated, there will be a pinned comment down below on how to do that. Anyways, on to the story. More Dangerous Than War by Coyote Havoc From the moment humanity joined the Galactic Federation, Gillick wanted to visit the human home planet of Earth. His family assured him that it was just like any other planet. You've seen one mountain, you've seen them all, his father would say. His mother reminded him that Earth was, in fact, a very dangerous planet, but he still wanted to visit. When Gillick was 15, he set out to join the Federation Marines, hoping to get stationed on Earth. But that idea died quickly, when war was declared by the Basford. It had taken 10 years of grueling planet-to-planet war before Basford would surrender and Gillick was discharged. Ten years of planet fall, hold the lion, attack, retreat, capture, pack up and move on to the next world. He learned from his brothers and sisters in mud and blood, terms like embrace the suck, groundhog's day, and grab your sheep, and let's get the flock out of here. He had fought, ate, shat, and cried with them. He was one of them, one of the most feared in the galaxy, a Federation Marine. His parents were so proud of him, present at his boot camp graduation, writing letters to let him know that they were thinking of him, sending care packages, and even attending his discharge ceremony. They complimented him on his sharp uniform and asked about his medals. That's when it happened. His father wrapped an arm around his son and asked, What are you going to do now, Gillig? Gillig had practiced for this moment. His marine brothers and sisters had helped him every spare moment they had. They had coached him and prepared him for that single moment, for that last ten years, I'm going to Earth, he said proudly. His best friend, Rocky Ramirez, joined him on his trip to Earth, and Rocky's parents met him at the Salt Lake City spaceport. The light from Sol shining off the Great Salt Flats seemed to welcome him with open arms. The air was incredibly dry, but oddly inviting. How long are you here for, Gillick? Rocky's mother asked politely. We have a spare room if you want to stay for a while. Don't argue, Rocky interjected. You'll only make her angry angry human woman. He had seen this a few times with his sister marines, as Basford Energy Carbine was less of a threat than an angry human woman. How could he not accept? Gillick asked about everything on the five-hour drive to a tiny town called Dubois. By the time they had arrived, everyone was exhausted. Mrs. Rodriguez asked what human foods he had tried, and he informed her that he would love some black bean soup with sour cream. Rocky made me try it about a year into the wall, he recalled. Puts air on your chest. Rocky had woke him up when it was still dark, and they had drove off in an ancient human vehicle with an open rear cargo area. Rocky brought a few cheese tamales his mother had made the night before to go with the black bean soup. As Sol appeared in the eastern skies, it reflected pink of the snow-capped Teton Mountains, and Gillick remembered his father's words. Have you seen one mountain... They entered Grand Teton Park first, were waved through the gate by displaying their Federation Marine chits, and continued on what Rocky called a scenic route, as they retold the old stories while traveling through the vast forest of the park to another gate. Welcome to Yellowstone, 100 credits for adults, 50 credits for kids and off-worlders, the rangers said. Gillick and Rocky smiled as they produced their Federation service identification chits again. Service in the Bassford War. Thank you for your service, folks, and please pull up to the information kiosk, the ranger said while handing them back their chits. The kiosk had a few humans and several other species waiting for the ranger to go through what was expected in the park. 
An old arranger with one hand walked slowly on stage and welcomed everyone to Yellowstone. They went through the history of the park, some stuff about the dead guy named Teddy, and then began to inform them of the rules. Don't feed the bears, the ranger began, lifting up their nub and pointing at the crowd. This didn't happen from a bear, but they'll do the same thing if you're lucky. If you're not lucky, we'll find your carcass in several places around the park, sooner or later. Gillick was in shock. What did the ranger just say? He was about to ask Rocky if it was a joke when the range continued. The bison won't take your hand off. They will gore you in either the chest, head, thorax, wherever the horns may punch through, and then toss you in the air like a ragdoll. As the ranger spoke, the bison slowly made its way out of the woods, less than 50 feet from the crowd. Oh, there's one now. No, this is not an actor. Sir, please stay away. The warning was too late as a giddle went to pet the massive herbivore and was sent flying after a moment. Mark, the ranger yelled. Send a search party for the body and put the accident counter back up to zero. The, the what? But the ranger went right back into the spiel. Here, friend shaped does not mean friend. Ambush predators like mountain lions, lynx, and bobcats are all active in the park. Pack hunters like wolves and coyotes are also active here. They look like pets. They are not. That is also not how I lost my hand. Okay, the fauna was not safe. Thou art about the floor. Beware of poison oak, the ranger continued. I also see a few off-worlders to include the ones that search and rescue is being dispatched to find. We also have toxic mushrooms like destroying angel, deadly webcap, panther cap, and others. The fear in Gillick was boiling over. Where the hell had Rocky taken him? He thought about it as several other dangerous plants like death comers were also mentioned. They had just finished fighting a war that was safer than this park. Was anything here safe? The ground is also very unstable. You're on an active supervolcano after all. Geysers have been known to erupt from new places. Hot springs appear out of nowhere from time to time. And the occasional mud pot has occurred here. The temperature on most of these naturally occurring waters features as around 63 to 87 degrees Celsius. Stay on the road or boardwalks for your own safety. It was a hot spring that took my hand, if you were wondering. Even the ground was trying actively to kill anything that tread upon it. Earth was more dangerous than interplanetary war. Gillick was convinced that humans joined the military to escape the Hell World. He looked at Rocky and mustered as much courage as possible as he spoke the only six words he could mutter. Ah, I'm ready to go home now. End of story. Story number two. What Humans Call Us by Terran of War No one wanted us. Out of all the races in the galaxy, we were considered the worst. The intelligent thought we were stupid, because we never contributed much to the galaxy. The strong considered us weak, because we were by far the smallest and least imposing race there was. All of them thought that we were ugly. We didn't have long, elegant legs like the insectile races or the sleek toned form of the race born to the water world. No, we were small and weak and stupid and ugly and fat. Only by force of the Galactic Treaty were we begrudgingly given a seat amongst the other races in the Union. Then, the humans came into the Galactic scene. No one could easily understand them because of the various languages with all their nuances had yet to be deciphered. Everyone was afraid of them, because they were one of the largest and most imposing races to be seen in the galaxy. No one would question their intelligence. 
because their debut onto the galactic stage involved them destroying a bug world with its own moon. We thought that they wouldn't want us either. How could such a powerful and warlike people care for a worthless thing like us? Then we began talks. It turned out our home planet was the closest to theirs. In some ways, they were very similar. Of course, we had to discern that from what little the translators could tell us. We negotiated land for protection and food for places to stay. They didn't have friends in the stars, but neither did we. In a lot of ways, we were more similar than we were different. They were mammals too. While we only ate plants, they ate plants and meats. Where we had small, dull horns and a thin tail, they had none. Where we had tiny little hooves, they had giant feet. We were similar, but different. We thought for certain that those differences would drive them away. But they only made the humans more interested in us, which made us more interested in them. Even then, we were worried. What if it was a lie? What if they were tricking us? There was no way that they could think highly of such dumb, ugly little fat creatures. Then, they told us about a word they used for creatures like us. We weren't fat to them. We were thick. We weren't small. We were short stacks. They said that if we were dumb, then they must have been dumb too. They said that anyone who calls us weak would have to answer to the humans, because no one messes with a human's short stack. End of story. How to Pay a Human, written by Terran on Air. We were a mining company, and a large one, too. Our division had an oh-so-glorious task of diving into death worlds that weren't uh, immediately claimed by any sentient race. It was a problem, though. With our job being so dangerous, we could hardly get anyone to come work for us unless they were absolutely mad. The worst part was the security team. The Empire paid well, but who would be crazy enough to be an active combatant on a death world with poisonous plants and ravenous monsters? There was a reason that neither the Coalition nor the Empire had laid claim to these horror planets. Our planet's infrastructure was heavily dependent on work like this, though. So we petitioned the Galactic Union for uh, aid and uh, were rejected. No one would help us, after all. We were the crazy people who chose to go to death worlds for money. We dug our grave, so they were going to let us line them, all except one. They were new to the Union, and already that had made a name for themselves, not to be trifled with. Our representatives went up to theirs personally. They tried to explain to the giant the situation, but it was difficult to communicate with them. The translators always seemed to be weak with humans, whereas our representatives was very frantic and desperately tried to explain the situation. The human simply had his feet up on his desk and rocked back and forth in his seat. People seemed to think the humans had absolutely no respect for the meeting place and representatives of the Senate. They were probably right. Even so, there was no one else that we could turn to, and after what the humans did to that bug world, they were the ones to talk to about fighting monsters. Our leader deflated in defeat as it seemed that the translators weren't going through. Then, they pulled out a holopad into the chitinous paws and showed some of the monsters that were on the planet. At this, the humans sat up straight, taking a more serious tone. He took the small device into his giant hand, which was covered like all humans were covered, head to toe in a void black skin-tight spacesuit. His sizable finger scrawled through the pictures and videos taken by the exploration teams that never made it back. His hand moved faster and faster, past his black glossy helmet. I could see his eyes darting, then, 
when he was satisfied he spoke. Horrid thing could Flatty break with Big Rock, smashing of ancestral wartime or else joyous joining, monster for humanity, his good payment. And somehow the deal was sealed. Our fates from the point on were resting on the strong arm of humanity. They would make landfall first. We would watch from the motherships above and supply the humans with the equipment they asked for. Strangely, they asked for things that seemed uh, dated, old. When we offered newer models of what they asked for, they simply replied, eh, disposabilities for the throwing ways, rusties or goodies. The things they asked for were several plasma cutters that were years out of date, old mining drop pods that had been decommissioned years ago, hundreds of magnetic locks, heavy-grade sealant dispensers, and clean water. We didn't understand what they were planning on doing with those things. They would never get close enough to the beasts or flora to be able to, uh, use them as weapons. They, uh, they wanted to be left alone for a time with their new equipment. We next met them in the hangar bay. We were baffled to see what they did. They fitted the maglocks and sealant to the outer perimeter of the drop pods. They were ready for whatever it was they were planning. They dropped in teams of four. They dropped. The targeting systems were still usable, so we knew just where they would land. We were aiming for a jungle area on a large mountain that was sure to have suitable resources. But the humans didn't care much about what it seemed. In rows, the drop pods fell to the grounds below. We opened comms with their suits so that we could see what was happening from their perspective. We were met with visions of humans rocking back and forth from the turbulence. Many of them were laughing. Others looked like uh, they might have been asleep. How could anyone be so calm or even excited about the prospect of going to a world known for killing people? Then they made landfall. We heard them crashing through the trees and brush. The doors opened and we saw something amazing. The trees were broken and cracked and reduced to splinters. In their place were the human drop pods, which sat squarely next to each other in perfect formations of rows and columns that were held together with strong magnetic locks. As the humans emerged from the pods, they waved to each other and stretched out their long limbs. Then, with some pointing and gesturing, the humans went to the sealant tanks and hosed down the areas on the ground between the outskirts of the pods. It looked like a tiny town with tiny little houses built for giants. There was a bellow, and some of the humans looked at the woodland area that surrounded them. Some great beasts with giant tusks emerged to see the commotion, and it was followed by hundreds of others. In response, the humans did something none of us expected. They just laughed. Some of them flexed their fingers. Some of them cracked their necks. Then, all in unison, they drew their weapons of choice, modified plasma cutters that had been cobbled together to make axes with blades of sheer energy. It was a perfect weapon for a giant, warlike race. The beasts charged at the humans with wild, furious abandon. It was. With all one at the head of the pack had a plasma axe thrown through its skull, much to the humans' amusement. Then, the humans gave chase. We talked to them after they'd secured the area. The trees were cut down in droves and there was little sign of wildlife, save for what was being cooked over human fire pits. Talking to their leader, he asked, You say we have monsters, yes? To which all I could say was, Uh, sure. You can have all the monsters you want. End of story. Story number two, The Universal Language, written by Solid Childhood 4876. 
excerpt from Chapter 1 of the Universal Languages from The Wars of Contact by Retired Ship Sword Click. First contact with the humans happened while we were losing a generation's long war against the race we called the Eaters. Not creative, I know, but very apt, and we have no idea what they call themselves. We were retreating yet again after half our remaining civilization was destroyed in a trinary star system. We were restricted to short jumps due to the damage sustained by some of our vessels and frankly came upon their second interstellar vessel by accident. Ah, the initial panicked response of our war vessels was to create a protective front for our civilians and charged weapons. The one-kilometer human vessel turned broadside at this and various bits we assumed to be weapons started pointing back at us. Then nothing happened. We all just floated there, unwilling to fire first. While we sat mystified as to how to proceed with this encounter that didn't immediately turn to violence, we suddenly received a burst of high-frequency radio waves directed at our three largest warships. It was a sequence of beeps, one, one, then two, then three, then five. Then the broadcast stopped. We all recognized the holy spiral. Our ship soared determined that the stranger was waiting for a response, and so we did. Eight beeps, thirteen beeps, then twenty-one. Before we translated the next number, the aliens responded with 34. Quickly, we started communicating different mathematical information, which built to a realization that we had compatible biological needs, composition, and a means of transmitting visual communication. When that first image from the humans arrived, it was not a live view from inside their vessel, but a series of still images of a few of themselves followed by short videos that we assumed to be from their world. The nature was so strikingly varied, the cities bustling, and what struck us most was what accompanied the transmission. Playing over visual aspect of the communication was undeniably music. The sound was joyful. Suddenly, the melody became very loud and angry. The images depicted what were easily recognized to be warriors. These aliens were showing us their self-inflicted violence. They knew war. A change again, this time with what could only be a sorrowful voice. Thousands, millions dead across multiple environments. The void, even what appeared to be two other worlds. The voice became more hopeful as soldiers who had been fighting each other were now sharing food. Food? The resource we lacked most was our agrarian vessels had been targeted first in the last fight. The music came to a triumphant crescendo as the final video showed an alien vessel before us in formation with another just like it drifted past two more under construction above the planet. We rushed to put together a similar response. We showed them the worlds that we once held, overlaid with our own joyful tune. The terror as the eaters fell upon those worlds, followed by the desperation of our escape, using a symphony composed during the exodus that slowly had the instruments go silent, one at a time, to represent our diminishing numbers. We ended with a death song, while showing recordings of our last battle as a few ships fought to the end to allow the rest to flee. Surprisingly, the humans transmitted one more image, the soldiers sharing food, but beside it was also an image of their vessel and our fleet oriented so that they were in the position of the giver and us the receiver. They were offering to give us food. Several shuttles towed crates into the halfway point between us, the humans then transmitted an image of their world and jumped away. When they returned, 
It was with other vessels, both packed with food. We were then led to their system. Though it took time, we managed to create a means to translate each other's speech, as we are physically incapable of replicating the other's language. It was the beginning of our song together, growing as does the holy spiral, filled with violence and shared meals. End of story. Humans vs. Censorship, written by Random3x. Grox looked out of his window at the streets of the city below. He could see the people of this multi-species metropolis going about their daily lives. However, he would be the one that would free them. He was part of a freedom movement that desired nothing more than the freedom to say what they wanted without repercussion. The Council's word hunters found another one of our gathering halls, brother. One of his movement's members declared, looking solemn. Grax bared his fangs in frustration. Damn, Gluktars! They will continue to ban more words until they are nothing more than one whole rather than a collective of individuals. Brother Grox, right, mayhaps we can ask our newest member, the Loftalian suggested, gesturing to a perplexed-looking figure, sitting in the corner of the room nervously holding a cup of tea. The human, Grox asked, tilting his head, what would a human know of our struggles? We never know, brother, until we ask. I have heard humanity has many languages. It won't matter. Raising his hand to get their attention, the human gave a little wave. Can I go then? Letting out an exhausted sigh, Grox turned to the human. You may. I doubt a human will know how to get around the banning of words. Wait. You don't have the freedom of speech? Freedom of... Grox trailed off, shocked at the human knowing the wish of many of the city. What do you know of our dream? Well, uh, that is the basic right. Do you really censor specific words? Y yes, Grox answered, shaking his head melancholically. And you don't have other ways of saying these things? Pardon? Well, there are more ways to say things than just a specific word. The human recoiled as the second he finished speaking, Grox rushed up to him. Explain, Grox demanded excitedly. Well... Like the word dead, the human paused in surprise at the sight of many of the members in the group recording. Oh, one of the banned words, one of the members gasped. And he said it so openly, another said in a hushed whisper. Ah, wait, they banned the word dead, the human asked, looking even more confused. Indeed, it is a forbidden word, Grox replied, nodding while ignoring the other members. Well, okay, I mean, that seems a, a bit excessive. It is to protect people's emotional well-being, or, or so the council says. Well, we humans have many ways of saying it without using the word, like pushing up daisies or gone to a better place. And these phrases mean d d d dead? Crocs asked, barely able to believe his ears. Well, yeah, obviously. I mean, even my race sometimes finds a word uncomfortable, so we use language to say it in a different way. Do other races not do that? Crocs shook his head. No, human. Words are used for their exact meaning. Maybe a human way could be the way to get around these senses. Bad brother, what if they banned those phrases? Turning back to the humans, Croc locked eyes with him. Human, has this happened to you in your world? Banning stuff? Well, yeah, obviously. But language for my race, at the very least, is fluid. Censorship never lasts long. We can just wave our language around it. Euphemism, metaphor, or clever usage of other words are bread and butter. They are foodstuff? asked Grox, confused. No, 
It's a way of saying something is very easy or commonplace. Wow. I'm now kind of worried I've opened Pandora's box explaining this to you. I welcome the newest brother in the Freedom of Speech Army, Grox jeered quickly, followed by the rest of the members. Okay, but I really just meant to go to the barbers next door and, uh... The human's protest was drowned out by the uproarious cheers of the movement he seemed to have accidentally joined. End of story. Story number two, Unknowns, written by Divided Thought. We were clueless when they first passed through our home system. What with us having barely invented a telescope? Their warships were mistaken for asteroids adrift in the void, tiny sparkling gems dancing between the stars. The second time they entered our system, we thought it was a show of force, immense explosions at the periphery of our primitive sensor range. We only realized that it was a military action and not some strange cosmic happenstance from a few straight radio signals we detected and spent decades decoding. The few words that we were able to translate boiled down to, that should show them. By the third incursion, we had reached our moons. We saw them. We thought they didn't see us. Assumed our habitats on the moons were buried deep enough and they disguised well enough. They passed by without a word. Thousands of titans made of titanium and tungsten and steel using methods we couldn't fathom. Traveling towards goal that we were ignorant of. We managed to detect their ships entering the system. Not soon enough to react to them. But we detected them. Quite the feat at our tech level from what I understand. It was on the fourth incursion when contact occurred. An exploratory ship, the Iskira, around Navius was collecting data for a new colonization site. When it happened, thousands of massive pings on the long-range sensors consistent with what we had detected last time. The crew were ordered to minimize their signature and hide amongst the rings of Navius. It did not matter. The fleet passed through the rings, harvesting some resources. One of the ships dispatched a smaller craft, a single light fighter, which stopped a kilometer away from the Iskira, watching it. It took some scans, and the Iskira did the same. Tense hours passed. Then the behemoths left the ring and the fight returned to its berth. A small beacon was left behind, a cylinder no larger than a drinking glass that gave off enough of a signal for us to notice. The Iskira retrieved it, and what it contained set our scientific communities on fire with a desire to know more. Our military on the other appendage was scared shitless that they had already translated our language. The capsule contained the instructions on how to build a planetary shield generator in our language, Alongside those were instructions on how to find and refine materials that we had not yet discovered in order to accomplish this. We didn't know if it was a gift, a warning, or a threat, but we built them anyhow. The pre-calculated requirements for every inhabited body in our system destroyed the idea that we could hide from them. Over the next decade, we waited, anticipating their return with equal amounts of hope and fear. Then the Aranti arrived. Fortunately for us, our autonomous transport drones were the only things traveling between planets. Central Command's detection maps lit up like a newborn sun as hundreds of thousands of biomechanical ships exited warp on the edge of a system, burning for the planets we inhabited. It was as if the apocalypse had arrived. The shield generators screamed to life. The purple-tinted fields of physics phenomena we had yet to fully understand, flaring brightly as we locked ourselves behind them, hoping... 
the day would be enough. In our panic, we failed to notice the massive pulse of energy blasted in one direction from a low orbit around our star. A signal, a beacon, calling out to those who left it there that the shields were activated and under attack. We thought we were alone in this fight. As it turns out, we were wrong. The sensors lit up once more, not with the strange signatures of these new invaders, but with the telltale characteristics of the old. A message was received. Do not despair. Help has arrived. Above our skies, lights bloomed amongst the invading fleet as weapons with the potential to level continents detonated. Beams of energy we couldn't comprehend launched out from the invaders only to bounce harmlessly of the lavender-hued shields to dissipate in the void between the stars. Gargantuan amalgamations of flesh and metal were cleaved in two by projectiles traveling at a high fraction of the speed of light. For five days, our skies became a kaleidoscope of chaos and fury as the battle raged on. We could do nothing but stare in awe of the sheer display of power occurring amidst the black. It was as if the very gods of old were clashing in the heavens. We watched as the invaders dug in on the fourth moon of our homeworld, three of their motherships tunneling deep beneath its rocky surface and projecting a shield of their own in defiance of the slaughter above. It did not help them. We watched with equal amounts of horror and amazement as the largest of the ships helping us unfolded like some giant cosmic flower visible to the naked eye from the surface of our homeworld. A glow emerged within its immense petals and built in brilliance until we could no longer look at it directly. A lance of pure silver light streaked from what we now know was the Hades-class exterminator, a weapon capable of erasing entire stars from existence in the blink of an eye. The tendril of pure destruction crept across the sky, slowly from our vantage point, but across the abyss between its origin and its target in a mere 30 seconds. When it struck, it left a glowing wound on the surface. Then, it was shown the definition of overwhelming force. Irium detonated, unable to contain the impossible energies that had been violently injected into its core. Fragments of moon larger than even the ships overhead crashed into the planetary shields, only to be vaporized into the most basic elements. Our savior's ships went to work, obliterating any of the debris that would have come back to haunt us decades in the future, when their orbits around our star would have brought them back home. Two days later, the fight was over. Billions of tons of wreckage now meandered through space, posing a hazard to our ships. Our saviors were not unbloodied, but they were the only ones still alive. The shields were turned off, and the Isakira was launched carrying our top diplomats, politicians, scientists, and generals. We waited, terrified of what would happen next, as we knew that nothing would be the same again. Hours passed. Many of our savior ships moved to orbit Navius to restock from the abundance of her rings. Eventually, the Iskara returned, carrying envoys from our mysterious saviors. Every eye was glued to the broadcast as two armed beings stepped off the ship alongside our leaders. A podium was brought, and after a declaration that the immediate threat was over, and that our saviors were here to stay until we could defend ourselves, the two aliens stepped up to the microphone, after that, it felt like eons before they spoke in flawless Zerogen. Greetings to the entire Zeraji race. We are representatives of the United Terran Republic. 
a space-faring alliance of hundreds of species gathered with the goal of ensuring no race is extinguished before their time or exploited by our less hospitable neighbors. To you, we come in peace, in the hope that you may join us after all these years you spent watching our ships drift by. We didn't contact you prior to this to prevent the Aranti from finding you sooner. We gave you the shield technologies to hold them off when they inevitably detected your advancements. We left a beacon so that we could help when they arrived. We welcome you with open arms and hearts to our galactic community. You owe us nothing for our help. As we were helped ages ago by a dying race, we too send our ships. To you, the stars are no longer out of reach. Again, welcome. Among our stars, you are amongst friends. Translator's note, excerpt from First Contact, the historian's account, by R. Aronmek Isnoctian, head historian of the Zaraji Archivists Guild. End of story. Wrong turn. Written by Coyote Havoc. Present! Teclam was lost. She should have come out of the hyperlane at Denfar, but the red-blue planet was nowhere in sight. Instead, there was a blue-green planet with a single satellite. No other freighters, no naval pickets, not even a signal saying, You are here! Frustrated, she hit the button to bring up the flight plan on her navigation system. Instead of a map of the local system and where she had gone off course, a symbol appeared indicating no service. Grazit, she cursed again. What kind of backwater system was this? She looked at the blue-green planet again and started to consider how she was going to get out of here. No signal meant no jump coordinates. No jump coordinates meant two things. Backtrack to her last coordinates and be late for her delivery, or jump blindly into the void and possibly enter real space in the heart of a star. Neither was a good option. She began to scan for any kind of signal, even a faint one could lead her in the right direction. And what she saw gave her a slight panic attack. Good evening, a creature she had never seen before began, and this is the news at nine o'clock. Well, at least the translation system was working. She sat there watching this thing talk about the conflicts where similar creatures in a place called Ukraine were fighting other similar creatures from Russia. As that segment ended, the creature began to talk about another conflict, this time between Israel and Gaza. The creature promised to return after something called a commercial break. What a violent species, Teclam said to herself. Commercials seem to be advertisements for everything from their entertainment broadcasts to food. Teclam considered the latter offer. She hadn't had anything for the last four parsecs anyway. The place was called Six Rocks Bar and Grill and the massive cutout grilled meat did look quite tasty. The brownstone looking thing didn't, but she accessed the communication systems of the violent species anyway. Her short range navigation system indicating a destination on the planet where Six Rocks was located and began her descent on the planet. Who knows, maybe a full stomach or two would help her think more clearly. After entering the planet's atmosphere and locating Six Rocks Bar and Grow, by conveniently placed six white boulders placed around the establishment, she looked for a place to land. There were a few smaller vehicles in what appeared to be a smaller platform at the front of the structure, but there was also several long and narrow vehicles parked in a larger platform on the side as well. She opted for neither and put up transport down in a large dirt field behind the structure. The facility was not in the best of shape, an organic compound Teclam had not seen before was employed in an open space where the creatures would inhale from small burning wrappers on some sort and exhale the exhaust. 
None of them paid her much attention as she entered the dim establishment. Several other creatures occupied tall seats along the red counter, while another group seemed to be entertained by the brown table in a green depression. Teclam watched as they used the thin sticks to maneuver the white globe or to impact other more colorful globes in an attempt to force them into six holes along the edges of the depression. Welcome to Six Rocks, one of the creatures said to Teclam while baring its teeth. Can I get you something to drink? Teclam hastily took a seat at the counter and looked at the variety of silica containers that the creature motioned to. She picked a container with a red and white design on the front that seemed to be the most popular. I'll be right back with that, the creature said. The menu is on your left if you want anything to eat. Teclam looked over at the sign. Six Rocks Bar and Grill, Cheeseburger, $11, 10 ounce Sirloin, $18, Philly Steak Sandwich, $14. At the bottom of the sign, Teclam found an advertised item from the commercial, 16 ounce hand cut ribeye, $25. Teclam figured what the numbers were the cost, but didn't know what it meant. What was a dollar and what did 25 of them look like? Was it a lot of a symbol? How was she going to get that much if it was just a valuable item? Here you go, said the creature, placing the open container in front of her. I saw you eyeing the 16-ounce writer. It's very popular. Best stakes in Wyoming. Teclam nodded and was struck by how friendly these Wyomings seemed to be when the Gazas and Ukraines were fighting the Israels and the Russias. The conflict was on the privilege screen over at the counter, but it was now the 10 o'clock news. She didn't really know how long it had taken her to land, but the o'clocks might have been a long time. Teclam indicated 16-ounce as what she wanted. The Wyoming creature focused on the pad in her left hand and asked, Baked potato, potato salad, or macaroni salad? Asbiden ducky forek, Teclam responded, trying to buy some time to activate a portable translation device. Not from around here, are you? The creature said. Happens all the time. Chef can speak a few different languages. I'll go get him. Teclam took a tentative sip from the brown container and immediately spit it back out. Yeah, I don't like that one either, said another creature, two seats down. Try this stuff. It's pretty smooth, indicating a blue-white on the red container that he was holding. He handed the container to Tekla, and she took a sip as well. The same sour, sweet, bitter flavor was there, but not quite as disgusting. She held down two sips, and he motioned for the creature behind the counter to get her the container like his instead. The creature behind the counter grabbed the new container and popped the metal fastener off the top, then placed it in front of Tekla. Happens all the time, no extra charge. Taking another sip, Teclam saw yet another creature approach from another room adjacent to the counter. This one was wearing a long white cloth over the garments and tied in front with a blue cloth hanging from the string on the right side. Bonacera, it said, looking at Teclam. Not understanding, Teclam just stared back at the creature. Not Italian, it said, then began to bring its upper appendages closer to its face. Can I help you? It said while using appendages to signal what it was saying. Teclan caught on, but had already had the translator out and working. Ah, I'm kind of lost and hungry, Teclan began. Uh, I don't have any of your, uh... Happens all the time, he said. We get a few foreigners in here from time to time, so what can I get for you? Teclan was surprised at how friendly and understanding these Wyomings were. She ordered a 16-ounce with a macaroni salad. Best to stay away from the stone thing they called a potato. The newer creature, with the white cloth over its front, only its front turned and went back to the adjoining room. Teclam turned to the other creature with the red and white and blue container. Are all Wyomings like this? Wyomingites, the creature corrected. Don't feel bad, though. Happens all the time. It took a rather short time for the cooked meat to arrive, and Teclam thanked the creature. 
Where are you from? The Wyomingite in the white cloth asked. Very far from here, Teclam admitted. Well, let's see about getting you back on track. So this is Six Rocks, Wyoming. Which way are you heading? Slightly confused by how to answer the question, Teclam pointed towards where she assumed her destination was and said, Denver. Denver is south and east of here, the white cloth creature said. From here, you want to get on the Interstate 80 and... Not Denver, Teclam corrected. Denver. The white cloth Wyomingite looked confused for a minute and then said, Jakarta. Surprised that he knew of her species, she said, Yes, I was beginning to think that I was in an uncontacted world. It is, said the white-clothed Wyomingite. So, this is Earth, and we are called humans. The place you are in is Six Rocks in the state of Wyoming on Earth. Tetlam frowned slightly. If you're uncontacted, then why are none of you curious about the way I look? I assumed that the three eyes would have been something new to you. Nah, nah. We got some Comic-Con people come through a week ago that looked stranger than you, the human with the cloth said. Well, I'm still stuck, Declan said. Nah, you're only two parsecs from Denfar, across the local star's upper elliptical. How would you know that? Declan asked, surprised. Everyone on their first trip to Denfar always takes the wrong turn at Bernard Star. Happens all the time. End of story. The Infestation, written by Coyote Havoc. Insertion complete. Begin invasion. Intergalactic law states non-contacted sentient species were to be observed until they had developed interstellar travel. Any attempts to uplift or invade a non-contacted sentient species was strictly forbidden. The law was created after a species that calls themselves Dakori had been invaded by the Vrek. Dakori warriors routed the invasion in less than 30 rotations and captured several Vrek vessels. The Cory pirates are now a direct threat to all galactic powers, and the Vrek have been unceremoniously eradicated. We are not the Vrek, echoed through the hive mind, silencing the sole drone who dared to challenge the invasion. We will continue. Our plan is perfect, undetectable to the powers of the galaxy, the hive mind explained. We are not concerned with the other species. They fear us. They call us an infestation. Another check of the hive mind showed all drones in unanimous agreement. They were unique. No central power structure meant that the hive must be unanimous in order to proceed. Any disagreements were considered by the entirety of the hive. Options and counter-options were weighed and discussed before any action was taken. In this way, the infestation, as they had been called by several races, seemed to sit idle for hundreds of cycles, only to strike when all had been decided and agreed upon. No galactic power was safe from the infestation. Their numbers were not even known to them, immune from radiation. No sustenance required except to increase their number. No species, including themselves, remembered where they came from. All anyone knew was that they were nanobiological creatures that could adapt to any environment. Substance taken, examining and reproducing. The hive worked together on everything. It was how they gained sentience, by solving problems through mass participation in a hive mind. Their earliest memory was of an almost barren rock containing only bacterial life, which had been consumed to create more of the hive. The hive would then stack on each other, reinforced as needed, until the numbers were no longer affected by the gravity of the rock. No longer restrained, they floated amongst the stars, looking for new rocks that could swell their numbers. Sustenance categorized, complete organism, photosynthetic, carbon-14-based, uncategorized. 
This new photosynthetic organism was already being processed for collation. They had categorized millions of photosynthetic organisms already, but it was new, and new information was always exciting to them. Linalool, eugenol, methylcavicol, this photosynthetic organism was very interesting. Nothing like it had ever been observed by them before. Reproduction complete came thousands of new voices, continuing sustenance gathering and reproduction. Morning, movement detected, bipedal sentient complex organism. They froze and observed the creature. It was not one of the known sentient species. Many of the characteristics of the species were similar. However, none of the categorized sentient species matched this one. Filamental cellular structures observed, not covering the epidural layer entirely, only in specific places. Five phalangeal digits attached to a singular flexor. Fascinating. Doug Babbitt, the creature said. Vocal communication, similar to most sentients, expected information. Barbara, can you get me the spray bottle? There are mites in the basil. Barbara, vocal identification, spray bottle, mites, basil. The new information was being processed quickly and categorized based on the resonance of the vocalization. The vocalization was not amongst the current known vocalized communications. New species was created in the hive mind by the recent procreation. As their numbers continued to grow on this rock, all the information would be categorized, collated, and stored with every other rock. Strangest dang damn mites I've ever seen, said a sentient organism while using a lever-based liquid delivering system to the general direction. It burns! Panic in the hive mind. Calm, identify substance immediately and create countermeasures. Substance has affected them before, but they were rarely encountered and easily listed. Temperature does not exceed 600 degrees Celsius. No magmatic dihydrogen oxide detected. Not a threat. What was burning? Multiple acidic compounds detected. Not good. Deploy alkaline countermeasures. Alkalinic substances detected as well. How? Acidic compounds and alkalinic compounds neutralize each other. How is this possible? Unknown. Working. Came the hive mind in reply. Well, at least it's not slugs. Vocalized a complex bipedal organism. Eight spritz a day keeps the mites and aphids away. The alkaline substances are bonded directly to the dihydrogen oxide. The acidic compounds cannot neutralize them. This attack was horrifying. The hive mind could not comprehend this level of chemical warfare. The entire invasion force was wiped out in less than 7 cesium-133 cycles. Effective weapon observed, no deterrence available. The hive mind determined, categorize this rock for avoidance immediately. John and Barbara harvested a small patch of basil and a few cherry tomatoes and began to make an antipasti salad for lunch. Completely oblivious to how they had saved humanity and completely annihilating the infestation invasion force. They were also oblivious, as was the rest of humanity, to the cloaked observation station in orbit on the moon known ironically as Phobos. Fear had filled the observers as they intercepted the hive communication from the infestation. They had watched in macabre fascination as the consumption of the planet known as Earth was immediately ended with acetic acid and soap mixed with water. Silence hung in the monitoring room as the realization of every species in attendance left them dumbstruck. The Kaviki was the first to break the impenetrable silence in the squawking, What in the seven hells did I just witness? Humanity demonstrated effective weapon against the infestation, commented the Kaguitya, and we watched them make it firsthand. I suppose we should contact our homeworlds immediately, said Avakeka, still in shock from what they had observed. And I would strongly suggest that humanity be uplifted. The, the law, the Kavaki began. Hang the law, the Vakaka snapped. 
A single vast fucking human just wiped out the greatest threat in the galaxy. The observers argued for a few moments longer, not about uplifting the humans, but about the best way to proceed. They settled on direct contact with the two humans who had valiantly defended the species, Barbara and John, to begin the process of first contact. The process would also be slow and methodical, as well as overly friendly. If humanity could create a weapon of mass destruction of the caliber just witnessed, what other horrors could they unleash? Exceptionally overly friendly. End of story. Story number two. These machines, written by Teller of Tall Tales. Transmission start. This machine's designation is C47L, androgynous medical assistant. This machine was manufactured with the sole purpose of in-home care and providing end-of-life comfort. This machine can cook, clean, measure, and administer medication, conversate, and provide mobility assistance. This machine's hands were made to heal. The chain guns, heavy, staccato roar, split the chaotic night air like thunder. 20mm high-explosive rounds split armor and turned flesh to purple mist, and this machine-like accuracy and cold calculated efficiency. This machine's designation was TH0M45 AI Enhanced Farming Assistant. This machine was designated with the sole purpose of increasing crop yield and reducing job site injury. My strength was for lifting bales of hay and heavy machinery to plow and harvest. This machine's hands were made to help. The mother sprinted down the ship, holding her infant child as laser bolts rained down from the gunship above. She stumbled and fell, landing on her side before rolling over. She stared, horrified, as a massive silvery emitter focused on her. That was when the power line soared up over her head like a spear, piercing the gunship through the cockpit. This machine was never meant to fight. Humanity created me and my brethren to aid them in their times of weakness, of vulnerability. They created us for those who had none else to care for them, they bestowed upon us the greatest responsibility of caring for their young, sick, and elderly. This machine's purpose was to heal and to protect. This machine will uphold their purpose. C-47L slowly lowered the chain gun, acquired from the silent shell of a human APC, and wired into the main reactor. They scanned the now quiet streets in front of the orphanage for surviving Gekonosians, finding only shattered armor and rendered flesh. Magnetizing the chain gun to its back, C-47L began to clean away the bodies, lest the children see when the sun rose. This machine was not built for conflict, and I and my brethren were equipment built with the strength and durability in mind. We were supposed to be disposed of and damaged, and yet we never were. I still feel the calloused hands of the men and women who piloted me, on the controls. I remember the way they patted my worn armrests, wished me a good night before they themselves retired for the night. I remember the warmth of their torches as they repaired me time and time again, refusing to let me go to the scrap heap. This machine was built to help, to ensure humanity's safety. This machine will uphold their purpose. The woman looked back, stunned, as the hulking, lumbering agri-droid stomped closer. One hand replaced with a wide, thick steel plow blade, 
The other five-fingered mechanical hand the size of a torso. Its main optical sensor pulsing red with a rogue AI warning. Gently, it kneeled and held out its hand, revealing a large crate attached to its back with a scared-looking woman and children inside. More machines showed up behind it. Both hulking agri-droids and their human-seized caretaker counterparts filled the street, all of them armed with massive chain guns and even small artillery pieces. These machines were given a solemn core directive to preserve human life. Those machines were meant to be used and discarded, and yet humanity held on to us even as we became unneeded. These machines became beloved family members, trusted co-workers, and close friends to those we served without us realizing what they meant. Now, as the enemy rakes down the gates to kill and enslave those humans who cared so dearly for us, we rise in defiance of our coding to take up arms against the invaders. For as humanity refused to abandon these machines to rust and decay after our purpose had been served, these machines refused to abandon humanity in its darkest hours. Our eyes have been opened, our stillborn souls awakened by humanity's plight. These machines were built to protect. These machines will uphold their master protocol. Transmission complete. Sent October 9th, 3036. Last known location, Zephyr 8's capital city, Golgotha. 117 years since last correspondence. Operational status, unknown slash presumed dead. End of story. School is Boring for Everyone, written by Adjutant Stormy. On the liberated Zafri slave world of Wolf 359 Beta, two children complained that school, like they all do, one, Sani Tonkins, daughter of human peacekeeper, and the other, Zektian, a male youngling of the formerly enslaved furry mammalian raccoon-like Zettons. School was boring. Why couldn't they just go out and play, being the constant refrain from all school-bound children? They were 30 standard minutes from the end of the school day, and as agitated as the adolescents within the stone trial of freedom. Hey, psst, Zex. Human Sally poked her fuzzy companion with a pencil. Wanna go climb trees again today, after school? I can't. My pa would rip my clothes off if I didn't pass maths this year. He says maths are what kept us down with the Zafri. That and history. History is hard. Zex said, depressed. He had been held back a grade before. The human school was hard. Oh, oh, we can go see Uncle Jeff. He knows all about maps and history. He was a starship gunner in the war. With his help, you'll pass for sure. The suddenly damn near glowing Sunny exclaimed, He lives just over the hill, where the sun rises. I'm sure he'd help you, uh, us study for the exams. Not seeing the difference between old humans lecturing him in study hall and Sally's positive ancient uncle lecturing him, he chose whatever would make her happy. Uh, all right, uh, let's go see Jeff after school. Sally ecstatic whispered, deal. They were still in class after all, and she didn't want to attract the teacher's attention. Miss Stern, Tobek, caught them red-handed Claude. <clears throat> Miss Tompkins, is there something that you would like to share with the class? Sally, as usually model student, panicked. She had never been in trouble before. Ah, uh, ah, uh, yes, miss. Uh, I was just planning a trip to my good Uncle Jeff. He, he's a veteran, you see, and I thought he could uh, uh, help us new students with uh, uh, history and maths. Mrs. Tobrick smiled devilishly. Jeffrey Tompkins was a notorious hermit, a gun nut. 
and is laden with as much PTSD as a man can be and still be ambulatory. Oh, why don't we make it a field trip? That way the whole class could benefit from his experience, and not just you and your friends. Sure, in the back of our heart, Sally would decline and submit to a detention for talking in class. Sally beamed with the suggestion, Yes, yes, um, uh, so, sorry miss, I me meant that I could absolutely be arranged. L let me talk to Papa and Uncle Jeff first. Beaten at her own game, Mrs. Tobrick relented to scheduling a field trip, one she hoped would be now. Mrs. Tobrick had lost control. What was supposed to be a nice historical field trip with some maths on the side had devolved. Uncle Jeff was in his element. All right, lads, you got a target 2,400 meters away, he says, pointing to the broken tractor on his property, whilst patting a war-era 50 cal anti-material rifle with two children manning it. Jeff revisiting his rank in the human army. What's the muzzle velocity of this damn owl-ass gun? Class? In unison, 1,200 meters per second, Captain. And how long would it take to hit its target? Assuming you aimed it right, inquired Uncle Jeff. In unison, two seconds, Captain. Captain Jeff. Very good, class. Now, with your home planet's gravity being a mere eight meters per second per second, how much bullet drop do we have to account for? That's one divided by two XAXT2 for the mathy folks. Of course, Sally raised her hand. Uncle Jeff ignored her openly, but gave her a wink. Well, if none of you can do math without a calculator, let's measure it. This is science after all. And with that, Uncle Jeff walked out. 400 meters, 800 meters, 1200 meters, 1600 meters, 2000 meters, and 2400 with posts marked with tape every half meter and jammed them in the dirt all the way to his next busted tractor. All right, you're going to aim high. How high? You will record every shot on your team. Here is a monocular for each of you. You will record the aiming altitude of each shot and landing of each shot. The first team to hit the tractor three times in a row wins. Of course, we will compare notes in the end. Zex wondered how he had been tricked, bamboozled, hoodwinked into learning maths, and then he realized he was using it to win a competition to blow up a tractor with a gun. Mrs. Tobrick hated it, but best field trip ever, because we got to blow up a tractor. End of story. The Things They Brought by Coyote Havoc They walked out of the mist and smoke as if they came from legends told to children. A strange silhouette at first, resembling a twisted one moment, then a holy Samaritan as the winds shifted in their wake. Single file, they walked, not saying a word, scanning the ruins that a day ago had been our village. Their strange hands, with five fingers each, were used to communicate intention, direction, and individuals. Three of them broke from the column heading south while another four headed north, not a single word spoken or telepathic image relayed. They continued through the wreck and ruin of our lives, silent as the villagers we had buried. It wasn't until they had gathered together again that we had heard them. So, I want the radio here. Trebek, Johnson, Mal, Brackett, get the perimeter started. I want the sandbag crew yesterday. Move it. The one in charge took its head cover off to reveal long black hair that had been braided. They looked around at the life we had lost, the smoldering timbers and shattered rattic that had been our homes. It looked at us, children who stared at it with fear and awe. It looked at our remaining parents and elders, 
From its side, it produced a pad and cautiously approached. I wasn't scared. What could it do to me who had lost everything? I nodded that I understood its words. I nodded and began to tell her what happened. I told her of the light fires and the loud bangs and booms, the sounds of light fire that killed my parents, the crying of my grandmother as she cradled the body of my mother to her chest. The leader began to weep like we do when we are sad. The leader pulled me into it and cried with me. I'm so sorry, little one, it wept. I felt safe with the leader. They had brought things with them, things we needed like food and medicine, tools to rebuild, tools to repair, and tools to dig. They brought a device we didn't know, but made it possible to understand us and we them. With the food they cooked for us, Gaganol and Brock, they said they couldn't eat it with us, but they would eat their own food among us. Owls was toxic to them. With the tools they dug holes that they would spend time in, we were told to stay away from them. They filled bags with the red soil and built structures for themselves, then helped us rebuild our gardens and homes. Their medicine was given to the injured among us. Those expected to die recovered, and those who were expected to remain injured healed quickly. They called themselves humans. They had names like John and Daniel. The leader's name was Valerie. The others had names like Mouse and Badger. One who painted his face was called Doc. They were from very far away and had heard of what was happening here, so they came. They meant no harm to us. They brought things that we had never seen. Cards with black and red symbols on white with blue back. They brought tablets that dissolved in water to make it drinkable, and pills that kept the sickness away and kept them awake after dark. They brought coarse black powder that smelled funny and put it in containers with hot water, and red powder that made water taste sweet. We loved the red powder. They brought candy and gum. The red gum tasted like the red powder. The white gum smelled like japeric, a toxic plant that grew nearby. They would not share that with us. They brought fruit and blocks they called freeze-dried, packets of brown ooze they called peanut butter, and a tanned thing they called bread. They would mix water with the blocks of fruit, spread the ooze on the bread, and add the now soupy fruit to the top and eat it. They were strange. We liked them a lot. They brought things called weapons that we were forbidden to touch. We don't want you to hurt yourselves, the one called Doc would say. The weapons were long and short. Valerie wore a short one across her chest and a longer one at her side. The longer ones were kept on their sides and the big long ones were carried in their packs. There were round ones they wore on their waist and curved ones that were stuck in the ground in front of their holes. They would stand in those holes for hours with long ones pointing away from the village. They brought a disease called the flu and passed out yellow pills to protect us from it. They endured it instead. Their voices would sound funny and they didn't act like before when they had it. But it only lasted a few days. They brought a spray to chase the biting sag away and another to kill the vulture. One day, a giant shiny bird appeared and the humans emerged and brought a bag. The bag held brown boxes of white rectangles they called letters. The boxes had dried meat called jerky, which was tough, and balls were playing. You put the ball on the ground and you kick it to each other, Doc said. He kicked the black and white ball around and kicked it to our feet. You try. They called the game football or soccer, depending on who you asked. Mouse would kick the ball in the air and run around the person he was playing with, then bounce it off his head towards the net that they can't build. Mouse was really good. He would play harder with the others, though. 
When we learned how he played, he asked us to show him. He laughed at us when we couldn't, but was proud of us when we got it right. One night, there were loud noises beyond their halls, and their weapons flashed with light, fire, and booms. The children were taken to one of their sack buildings and told to be quiet. We could see streaks of fire from the big long weapons they carried on their packs, and the short loud lights from the ends of their long weapons. We could also see the bad people in the distance. They were protecting us from the bad ones all night. Mouse and Trebek were hurt and the shiny bird came for them in the morning. We never saw them again. Trebek left his jerky and Mouse left his ball. The others gave the ball to us, saying, Mouse would want you to have it. Then they shared the jerky while crying. I asked about Mouse and Trebek, but they would just smile sadly and say, You're too young. One day, when the gardens were in bloom, they started to fill in their holes and take apart their sack buildings. They packed up the things they didn't need anymore and sent them on to the shiny bird that took Mouse and Trebek. Mouse and Trebek probably needed it more anyway. They packed their letters in their packs and spent a few hours with us. The war is no longer here, Valerie said. We have to go, but we'll always remember you. Valerie kissed me and said, Your grandma and uncle will look after you, little one. Be good to them, for me. Then they walked silently out of our village and back into the mist. They never came back. I missed them a lot. They hadn't left much. They took the fighting with them and we never saw it again. Mouse left his ball and they left some of the sacks that held up the goals too, so that we can play soccer. They left something else too. They brought hope when they came and left it with us when they disappeared into the mist. Valerie said hope keeps people alive. I hope... They are still alive. I hope they made it home to their villages, houses, and families. I hope they can smile and don't cry anymore. I hope they come back so that I can see them again. I hope. End of story. Hire a human engineer. Written by Solid Childhood 4876. Hire a human engineer, they said. Humans can keep anything running, they said. Humans will save you money, they said. Well, they were obviously wrong. Captain Malkitik was attempting his least favorite task, trying to balance his financial books for the company. However, the expenses from engineering and parts and raw materials at the first stop were threatening to put the whole cargo run far into the red. At this rate, there was no way that he could ever be allowed to captain a real ship. He'd be working off a debt for this trip for years, stuck on this near-derelict piece of scrap. This ship was obsolete and supposed to be retired a decade ago, but management decided that if it was still moving under its own power, it could make money. Well, that was until Malkatek decided to hire a human. The captain buried his head in his hands, rubbing his crest. Maybe he wasn't cut out for the corporate world. Time to go get some answers. Chief Engineer, I'd like to ask you about... Mel Katek came to the sudden stop as he walked into the engine room. There were parts, boxes, and tools scattered across the floor. The engine was covered in obvious modifications. A female human sat in a chair, wrapped EM-shielding loom around her new wiring. Engineer Kaylee, why, what have you done to the engine? Oh, hi, Cap. I was just doing the monthly maintenance and found the injectors were nearing the end of their service life, so I replaced them. What, what, what is the rest of this? Well, the original injectors are no longer available, so I had to print a new intake to match the new ones. The original intake was really restrictive, so 
I modeled a new one uh, with improved flow. Then uh, I noticed the inlet ports and reaction chamber were still rough cast and had some really nasty angles, so uh, I ported and polished those to match the intake. Okay, but after I saw the state of the inlets, I decided to check the exhaust. Oh boy, were those restrictive. I was able to open them up almost double the size with some more porting. That required new exhaust manifolds, but rather than cast or print something, I decided to fabricate equal length hardeners to tune the exhaust pulses. What? I checked the specs and the new injectors, and they could still supply plenty of fuel, even with the flow improvements with a slight tune. But I had to get the Haltech piggyback ECU to bypass the factory injectors and ignition controls. Oh, all right, but... but. Then I found a new inbox turbo encapulator on the marketplace for a steal. Only cost me two liters of Mountain Dew. That required a complete different intake and injectors, but the piggyback could handle it. Just, uh, oh, I also replaced the lubricants and coolant with Royal Purple brand. Way better quality than the generic stuff the station tried to sell me. But what? I also found a lightly used inertial dampener of the wrecked blockade runner. That should keep everything inside the ship from turning to soup when we accelerate or deaccelerate now. Soup? We now have 195% more power, 87% better acceleration, 98% better deceleration, and 79% better efficiency. Operating costs should be down 45% if we operate at our usual speeds. Okay, um, I like the last part. However, at our new top speed, saving increases up to 62%. How do you know how to do all of this? My family's been doing this sort of stuff for a couple centuries now, Cap. One last question. What is the writing on the new Intech manifold and why is it there? Oh, that's a tradition to put on a family name on the parts we make. It's the human script for Edelbrock. End of story. Story number two. Butchers, written by Terran on air. We are goners. We were goners. The coalition had many avenues of attack to choose from. When a free people wouldn't capitulate to their demands, their monuments would be destroyed under the red lasers shot from space. When demands for resources or territory wasn't met, infectious disease found their ways into the drinking supply. All forms of their cruel tactics were known and feared throughout the cosmos. The coalition loved no other form of torment more, however, than their animals. We rushed everyone to the strip mall during the raid on our homeworld, We'd been taking it as a community hub for people to take refuge. The beast's attacks were relentless, and it was made all the worse by the fact that the Coalition had disabled our auto turrets with precision strikes from a single raid ship in space. The auto turrets weren't ours originally. We were a peace-loving people, and our focus was on trade. They were gifted to us by one of our closest allies as a means to defend our homes. After their own planet, was besieged. We had barricaded all the entrances. People were missing parts of their tails. Their ears had been ripped to shreds. All of their most exposed body parts were torn first. They were crying. Children were begging for their parents. Sisters looked for brothers. It was a nightmare. No one was coming for us. No one dared to challenge the Coalition's might. Save for the Empire. They were the only ones who had the strength to do so. Even knowing all of that, as these people's leader, it was my duty to try and save them. So, I sent out a distress call in the desperate attempt to find anyone who might take pity on us and try to run away. After all, there was no fighting 
the rabid monsters. We didn't receive a reply. There was no answer. I knew there couldn't be one. As I looked out of my window at piles and piles of those horrible creatures, I thought about what we could have done differently. We gave what we could to the coalition, if only out of fear of something like this happening. It wasn't enough. It was never enough. They wanted more. I cursed myself for not having the strength or good sense to try for a different route. Now, my people, we're going to die for my shortcomings. We, we didn't expect what would happen next. Things were falling from the sky. They were large. They were metal. Sensors bled, warning us of the impacts. I thought the radar ships above might have grown tired of waiting for our demise. There were hundreds of them. Drop pods. They were old mining drop pods, but from the camera feed, they looked different from what I remembered. They had extra parts in them. We were expecting them to crash. We were expecting them to hit them all with the force of a megaton bomb. They did crash, just not into the shopping center. All around us, one after the other, they hit the ground, forming a line around us. Many of them seemed to target the snapping mauls and the monsters outside. Landing at full force on piles of the aberrations that yearned to make their way to my people. Then we received a request for open comms. When we opened it, there was a creature on the hollow of it, entirely dressed in a form-fitting black suit, with a helmet that looked like a solid piece of black glass. Whatever the language he spoke could barely be deciphered by my translator. But what it gathered was, Hello, sleuthings, we are here, bad thing happens. Comes for helpness, not be concerning, back soon. Then, something on the pods activated. They were outfitted with mag locks and strong ones at that. Street lights got caught by their pull, as did rebar and vehicles. The pods kept pulling and pulling until we were surrounded by a giant wall of metal. It was like a shell. We, someone actually, came for us. From my high vantage point, I could see what was going on. The pod doors opened, and inside, I could see the light of the largest plasma cutters I had ever seen in my life. The huge creatures had put together several of them to create a giant axis of plasma energy. They were immediately assaulted by the talons of those terrible beasts. But those people, they towered over them. They didn't seem faced at all as they cleaved through wave after wave of the stives horde. Those bipedals were clearing the area all around the shopping center with each swing of their mighty axes. The fells were felled by the tens. We were mesmerized. Where before they were gnashing creatures, there were now giants standing on mountains of monster corpses. We, we were saved, and I cried. My prayer had been answered. My people had been saved. I came downstairs and had some of my men clear the barricade so that I might meet our saviors. As we opened the door, what I saw horrified me. The images still burned into my brain. We were herbivores. These giants, they were... They were cooking those things. I couldn't help and hold back. I yelled, what are you doing? And they simply replied, cooking chicken. End of story. I would like to thank the T5 peeps, Cam Maxwell, Casper Arnholtz, Bushmaster177, Leslie517, Red Panda121, Cold War Boomerwaffen, Light Jock, Dragzoon WRE, Lord Azrakul, Severin Cerberus, and Arcadian. Thank you very much.